Would you stand with us as we begin our service and opening prayer? Dale, may I ask you to lead us in prayer? Amen. Morning. If you all will turn with me in the red to 327.
Does anyone have a favorite hymn this morning? Yeah, Jess? 428 in the brown. I need thee every hour. Is there a reason this morning? Four twenty eight in the brown. Our scripture reading 
for this morning is taken from the book of Psalm, chapter 51. When you come to that, please stand with us. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in these inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take me, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do not delight in sacrifice. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would br- or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. If you will turn with me again to 500 in the Trinity. Thank you. 
Well, long time ago, George told me to be ready to preach, pray, or die. I can't tell you how much <laughs> I have had to think about that statement. I've done two of those things, and I'm waiting for the third. Someday. Um, didn't have a whole lot of time this morning. Uh, Pastor called me just a few minutes before we were ready to walk out the door, and uh, so I ran to find something to bring this morning. I have to trust God's providence, right? In everything, even in the choosing of the sermon. So this morning, I dug deep into <laughs> the small archive of sermons I have, and this morning's message is not in the bulletin just because we just didn't know uh, at the time. It's called A Change of Heart. And it's dealing with repentance, a subject, by the way, that seems in our own Christian community to have become relatively taboo, okay? And uh, a process that is necessary uh, for us to see the Lord Jesus Christ someday. Uh, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll begin. <clears throat> Father, in days that seem to be chaotic and things are going different directions, and we wonder how we're going to be able to do uh, what is set on the table for us to do, we have to remember and take great peace and hope in the fact that it's not chaos, it is organized by you. And everything that transpires has a purpose. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you help us, uh, you will be with us, and that most importantly, that you will meet with us, that you will send your spirit upon your people this morning as we have met for the distinct purpose of worshiping you. There is no better use of our time than the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord, that you will be with us this morning and that you will send forth your word and power and that you will use your spirit to convict us and also, Lord, that you would be so gracious as to bring someone to know you this very morning. Be with our audience that is watching via the Internet. Be with our pastor who has been laid aside for today by your, by your plan. And I pray your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> When Christians think about the subject of repentance, we often think solely of the time of our conversion. And we, we remember the time that we repented of our sins and that we first believed. And although this particular event in our spiritual lives is very significant, the lasting effects and responsibilities of this event are often forgotten. Evangelical Christians today are very concerned with evangelizing the lost and building up their church populations. Programs for the children, teenage, youth, middle-aged parents, and the elderly are in abundance. These programs are designed to address the varied needs of the people in their church. But what are the needs of modern-day Christians? Certainly there is a need to help the little children of the church understand the stories of the Bible. Certainly there is a need to address the issues facing teenagers during that impressionable time in their lives. And certainly middle-aged parents need help in dealing with the many problems of child-rearing. Certainly there is a need to address the needs of the elderly in our church as they progress through their golden years. And inasmuch as these needs are real and important, they do not and should not eclipse the most important issues of the Christian life. Repentance and faith are some of the most important needs of any Christian and sadly, to our shame, they are most neglected 
in the churches of America today? Why is it that we do not think it is necessary to continue on in repentance? Why do modern-day churches balk at the subject of personal, ongoing repentance? What is it about the process of repentance that causes us to place it in the backs of our minds or not think of it outside the confines of the salvation experience? Repentance, as with so much of the gospel, causes the believer to look outside of himself for help. Repentance, as with faith, is a gift granted by God. We as Christians are solely dependent on God for all things pertaining to life, and repentance is no different. We cannot actively remove sin from our lives without the working of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is a necessary doctrine, brethren, and we must be about the practice of this important aspect of the Christian faith if we are to have any place in the kingdom of God. Let us look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. As we study his word on the issue of repentance, let us be receptive to the gentle prodding of the Holy Spirit. Number one, repentance is an ongoing act. Let's look at one misconception of repentance. Modern-day Christians who have been ensnared by easy believism have also been ensnared by an attitude of easy living. In the view of these people, the requirements of living the Christian life cannot be more difficult than the initial conversion experience. Therefore, repentance, because it is difficult and unpleasant, must have been a one-time act at conversion. The Christian life, after all, is one filled with joy, happiness, and love. Repentance deals with the ugliness of sin and therefore is detrimental to one's self-esteem. Now these thoughts may not be actually formed completely in the mind of an easy belief Christian, but their influence can be certainly established by an examination of their lives and of their talk. Part of their misconception comes from two other acts paired with repentance. Many times in the Bible, the command of God is given to repent along with the command to believe or to be baptized. John the Baptist in Matthew 3 verse 11 paired the command to be baptized and to repent together. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus paired belief and repentance together in his command to people of his day. In Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 it, it reads, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. In Acts 2 verse 38, Peter warned his audience, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now from these commands of God, Christians have come up with the idea that as we believed once unto life and were baptized once into obedience to the command of God, then we must have also repented one time as well. And then, as such, repentance as its requirements to the believer have been fulfilled. Several problems arise with this faulty logic. Let me ask you, after you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ on that day of your conversion, did you ever stop believing? 
is not the same truth that brought you to your knees in utter self-contempt over your grievous sins against the holy God still true today? Does not the fact that your wickedness has been completely forgiven and that your condemnation has now been drowned in the crimson blood of Christ cause your heart to this day to rejoice? And if so, then you still believe the message today as it was spoken to you when you were rescued from your sins. Belief in Jesus Christ is the ongoing part of the Christian life. To continue to believe in Jesus Christ is to, be, is to continue to be obedient to the command of the gospel to believe. In the same way, baptism, although in time and space is a one-time act of obedience, is really an ongoing obedience to the command of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, how so? What is baptism? Is it not a public identification with Christ in his death? Have you stopped being identified with Christ this morning? Truly, as we move about life and possibly move out of association with the church that witnessed our baptism, or as we meet new people, do we have ourselves rebaptized so that each new person we meet can witness our public declaration of identification with Christ? No. We continually are identified with Christ by name as Christians, in actions and thoughts and in speech. Repentance, then, also, brethren, is not a one-time event in your life when you repented and believed, past tense. No, repentance, as with belief in baptism, is an ongoing event in your life that has to be thought of as a very high priority. It is true that we did renounce our sins and believe the message of Christ on the day of our conversion. However, as we most certainly continue to believe in Jesus Christ and his saving message, and we continue to be identified with Jesus Christ and his death, we must also continue to renounce and turn away from sin within our lives. So what is true repentance? What does it mean to truly repent? The Greek word for repent is met, uh, metanet, I can't pronounce it today, metaneo, if that's right, which means to change one's mind for better, to heartily amend with aberrance the one of one's past sins. Now, at first thought, one might think lightly on the idea of merely changing one's mind. Humans, after all, are great at changing their minds. However, why do we as humankind change our minds? Well, most often it is because more information has been found that has altered the prudence of a decision already made. Some other element of truth not known beforehand has been presented to the discerning mind, and therefore a change of mind is warranted. So how is this related to the act of repentance? One might easily say that the highest form of truth presented to the human mind is, the, is revealed in the manifestation of Jesus, the living Christ. Once this truth is revealed, a change of mind is not only necessary, but mandated. The problem comes with humankind's inability to determine God's truth from Satan's deception. Our depraved and corrupt nature extends to our minds as well. We are thoroughly corrupt. And as such, we cannot even recognize the truth of God's word, let alone act upon it. To the depraved mind, 
to change its decision about the validity of God's truth is pure nonsense. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Or again in Romans 8, verse 7, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Therefore, it takes an act of God to change our minds, or bring us to repentance, if you will. This change of mind is part of the change of nature that occurs when God mercifully saves a sinner. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Romans 8, verse 6. This godly change of mind is not a small change by any stretch, but rather a cataclysmic event that completely and forever alters the way the human mind operates. Instead of changing the decision of a particular evaluation of variables, the entire way the mind perceives and interprets data is changed. Instead of seeing events through the putrid filth of a degenerate mind, the mind blessed with repentance sees events through the pure and holy mind of Christ. Repentance, then, is a gift of God, not something that be, can, can be learned externally and then merely adopted. As we continue to grow in the faith, we adopt those things that please God and cut off the things that grieve God. It is this removal of sin, the process of sanctification, the turning away from what used to be appealing to us but had now become reviling to us. That is repentance. And as we have studied before, this is not a one-time occurrence. As we grow and learn more and more about our depravity, wickedness, and spiritual bankruptcy, we must continue to weed out the deep-rooted sins within our lives. Our knowledge on earth will forever be incomplete. It is not made complete the moment we are brought into a right relationship with God the Father. We do not see all of our sin. Although this is true, we also know that God is not content to let us just sit there in our ignorance. We may never know everything, but there is enough knowledge about ourselves that can be learned throughout life to keep us busy until death. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, verse 2. You Christians that have been in the faith for many years, have you not, as time passed, seen more and more of your sin as you have aged in the faith? And as you have labored to subdue a particular eruption of sin in your life, have you not found even more sin upon examination? Brethren, to be a Christian is not to be called to a life of ease and tranquility. Rather, we are called to be workers in the harshest fields of labor known, that is, our lives. Yet it is to this labor that Christ has called us, and for this labor he has equipped us. Let us look at an even more poignant text. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily 
and follow me. Luke 9, verse 23. What does it mean, take up his cross daily and follow me? The statement commands, of course, that we follow Christ every day. Not one day are we to be missing. Yet there is significance in the use of the word cross. The cross, an executioner's instrument of death, is used to show us that we are to be about the daily mortification of sin in our lives. At the end of a day full of labor with Christ, we should be less like our sinful selves and more like Christ due to the fact that we have been actively putting our resident sin to death. This attitude towards sin demonstrates a changed mind or heart. Repentance, then, brethren, is the continuing daily act of turning from sin unto righteousness. Turning from known sin to acts that lead to righteousness is and always will be a tremendous battle. God grants us mastery over some sin very easily. Other times, sin seems to drag on for days and months and ashamedly years. What do we do about the problem of ongoing sin? Sin, that is, that will not seem to go away. Sin that has become our pet sin, our precious sin. We are certainly confronted with texts from Scripture like the following. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Now, if that list did not include elements of sin from your life, there's more. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, Revelation 21, verse 9. Or how about this list? People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, <clears throat> conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 2 Timothy 3 verses 2 through 4. Now we read texts like these and we wonder about our salvation because our sin is listed in one or more of these texts or some other don't-do list in the Bible. Furthermore, after wrestling with that particular sin for long periods of time, we still don't have mastery over it. Frankly, these failures can scare us and depress us, but our hope for victory is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, verse 6. The truth sometimes is hard for us to grasp, and sometimes we plainly may refuse to accept it. We see massive amounts of known sin in our lives or in the lives of others, and we don't see much progress 
and repentance and sanctification. Therefore, we assume that we must not be Christians. Although this attitude often can spark true repentance in our lives, we fail to see the same principle applied in the life of other believers. If we will remember what we have already learned, that repentance is the gift of God, then he who granted you repentance unto life will not abandon you to your own devices, but rather strengthen you to the task, and he will bring it to completion. There has not been, nor will there ever be, one Christian that God has abandoned over a loss to sin. God will bring each and every son and daughter to complete sanctification, every single one. We can take great comfort in that. If God resides in us, and we indeed have a changed mind, then God will be actively about the process of getting rid of sin in our life. Now, some examples of godly repentance. <clears throat> Let us now direct our attention to some biblical examples of godly repentance. The Bible is replete with examples of sinners brought into a right relationship with God by repentance. And I had you read Daniel 4 this morning because it's such a fantastic story. The story of King Nebuchadnezzar is a tremendous lesson in the power of God's work of repentance. Nebuchadnezzar was the instrument of God's wrath upon the surrounding nations of his day. The Babylonian nation conquered all in its path. In Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar is called God's servant. Even though he may have been God's servant, it was clear that he didn't know God. Truly from a pagan culture, Nebuchadnezzar was as indeed pagan as anyone has ever been. He was an idolater, as outlined by Daniel 3. He had set up a golden image 90 feet high. Truly, it must have been one of the greatest idols ever constructed. God used his idolatry to start to work in his life. And you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would not bow down to this idol, and because of their obedience to God over Nebuchadnezzar, he had them thrown into a furnace that was so hot that it killed the guards that threw them in. Yet they were unharmed. And what was Nebuchadnezzar's response? Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives <clears throat> rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Daniel 3, 28 and 29. Those are powerful words, are they not? But they are not the words of a believer. Although what Nebuchadnezzar said was true, there is no evidence of a changed heart. However, this event most definitely had an impact on his life. The next recorded event in his life was remarkable to say the least. As we read in our scripture reading this morning, Nebuchadnezzar, due to the arrogance of his heart, even after being warned of the consequences of continuing on in his sin, was driven from his place of power to wander the earth as a beast 
For seven years, seven years, he remained a wild beast, both in mind and form, estranged from men and drenched with dew. Yet, at the end of God's appointed time, Nebuchadnezzar's sanity was restored, and this is what he said. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and of the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to to humble. Daniel 4 verses 34 and following. <clears throat> Brethren, this is true repentance. He had gone from the height of arrogance to the pit of humility and had gotten a taste of true power, divine power. Whether his repentance led to eternal life, I do not know. I tend to believe that Nebuchadnezzar will be in glory. Consider that this chapter was penned by Nebuchadnezzar himself. This doxology is the way he sunsets into biblical history. We are left with a tremendous declaration of God's power. The story of Samson is another display of God's wondrous work of repentance. Samson was a judge or deliverer of Israel. He was appointed by God to bring judgment against the Philistines. Concerning his early life, the scriptures say this, The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Manea, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtael, Judges 13, 24, and 25. And so from his youth, the Lord had had his hand upon him, and even more so, God's Spirit was at work within him. However, even as soon as the next verse of Scripture, Samson is in trouble. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman, when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now go get her for me as a wife. Judges 14, the first two verses. Instead of marrying an Israelite woman, Samson becomes unequally yoked with a pagan unbeliever. This would become the pattern for his life. Over and over, he would get involved with pagan women who would exploit his lack of self-control. In addition to this, he despised his vow to God as a Nazarite by touching unclean things. Ultimately, in utter shame and humiliation, the enemies of God, the Philistines, captured Samson. They gouged out his eyes and displayed him as a public spectacle. This is where his unrepentant sin left him. Robbed of his tremendous strength, blinded, and enslaved as a performing monkey for his sworn enemies. And you might think that this is as low as possible for any human being, let alone a son of God, and you would be right. But as low as this state is, listen to Samson's prayer in his final moments of his life. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. 
Oh God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people within it. Thus, he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Judges 16, 28 through 30. Truly, it was not for Samson's eyes alone that God strengthened him again. Just before the verses I just mentioned, the Philistines had begun a massive feast in celebration to Dagon, their idol, over Samson's capture. And in reality, they were mocking God. And it is for this reason that Samson was allowed to wander so far from the faith. As Samson was brought back into a right relationship with God by turning from his wickedness, God brought retribution on Dagon and his worshipers. Now, how do we know that Samson indeed repented? First of all, did not holy God answer Samson's requests? And secondly, Samson is listed in the Hall of Faith chapter of Hebrews. As we look to scripture, we have the luxury of seeing the story of people's lives start, unfold, and complete. We see God's complete restorative work. But we must remember that as we look at our own lives and the lives of others, that we are only seeing the past and present time. We have no idea what God is going to do in the future in the lives of his children. We do know this, that if a person is truly a child of God, then without fail, the promise in Philippians 1.6 will be fulfilled, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. I may also be so bold to ask as well, how many saints die with known sin in their lives? I would venture all of them. Complete sanctification occurs only in glory, not before. The question is, were those saints active in the process of repentance? And the answer is, if God was indeed in them and they in him, then yes, they were working on destroying the sin in their life. Beyond that, the greater truth is that God is faithful even when man is not. Was it not God who designed the process of sanctification and repentance? Will he fail in anything that he has planned? In heaven, there is no hint of sin, and yet it is filled with people who used to be the total embodiment of vileness and corruption. God has made every one perfect before admittance into heaven. And to him be the glory for it. Brethren, trust God, therefore, to do what is right. This is not an expectation in which you will be let down. What can we learn from the study of repentance this morning? Well, first, I would like us as Christians to reevaluate what we think regarding repentance. Do you daily take up your cross, fully cognizant that it means death to your old nature and death to your sin? Is repentance an ongoing struggle in your life as you try to break free from besetting sin? Is your mind constantly being renewed and shaped into thinking the thoughts of God after him? I believe that we have treated the idea of repentance like an unwanted red-haired stepchild. Oh sure, we give repentance lip service, or we believe that it was more of a one-time event, but that's about it. 
Whatever state of sanctification you are currently in, babe or sage, God has called you to something better. If you are not actively about and purposely about and relentlessly renouncing your sin, you need to re-examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. Repentance is not for the super-Christian. It is for the everyday Christian worthy of the name. If you are indeed a child of God, then God will not allow you to just sit there in your sin. God desires holy and perfect worshipers. And as a Christian, God is moving us in that direction. Paul, in writing to the Romans, had this to say about the continued struggle, continuing struggle with sin. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who does it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Romans 7, verses 14 and following. You see, if we cannot be completely free from all sin that enslaves us while on earth, then repentance can never be satisfied. You will never run out of sin from which to repent. Why then would we ever stop repenting when we want to be like Jesus? The call of the gospel goes out to challenge our hearts today as the first time we ever heard it. Repent and keep on repenting and believe and keep on believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Secondly, and more importantly, I think we need to understand the greater purpose of repentance. We must examine our motives for the mortification of sin in our lives. Do we desire sin to be gone so that we no longer have to suffer the consequences of our sinful actions? Do we desire to be holy for the sake of holiness? Do we re repent because we want the guilt to go away? I would offer a better motive than all of these. As Christians, we should desire repentance first because God commands it of us, and second, because sin grieves the heart of God. David said in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David understood 
that all sin that is done is an effrontery against God. Sin is rebellion against God. Sure, we can un and often do sin against other people. But first and foremost, in all cases, we sin against God. We should desire to eradicate sin from our lives because it was for that very sin committed that Jesus Christ, the only precious Son of God, was whipped, beaten, and nailed to a wooden cross to provide you forgiveness. Take your dearest sin, your most intimate transgression, the one that you keep hidden from everyone else, and compare its pleasure to the horrific sacrifice of Christ Jesus, knowing full well he had to die for your moment of pleasure. How does that sin look now? Is it not detestable to you? Be done with it. Cast it upon the cross and nail it there where it belongs. Put this part of your life to death. Shall we hold on to our sin, knowing full well what our sin cost our God? Thirdly, let us not grow weary in well-doing. I realize that there are sins of which you desire to be free, and yet all of your reading on God's word in that area, all of the prayers for God's forgiveness and for the gift of repentance seem to be of no avail. Understand, forgiven sinner, that the total amount of your sins, all of them, have been done away with by the effectual work of Jesus Christ. That means that though you spend a lifetime wrestling with one particular sin, only one of you is going to make it to glory. This should not give us reason to quit fighting, but rather hope. As a soldier who has miraculously seen the future and sees himself alive after the battle has ended with tremendous zeal knowing that he will prevail. So let us now too press on in our struggle with sin. The flesh and all of its sinful desires have been dealt the death blow. And by that same blow, we have been given life. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 6, 12. Lastly, let us remember from where repentance comes. Have you tried to do battle with a particular sin only to find yourself more susceptible to its attacks after every conflict? Repentance is a gift of God to be granted in His good pleasure. We need to be about confessing our sin to God and actively asking for repentance from known sin in our lives. Our confessions do not inform God of our sin. He already knows about our sin past present, and future. The confession is to make us aware that there is a problem in our lives and that, yes, God is also aware of it. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verse 9. And did you catch the last part of that verse? He will purify us from all unrighteousness. And what is that? That is God's work of granting repentance, the turning away or renouncing of sin. If you have relied on your own ability to vanquish sin, call on Jesus to come into your aid. We are not strong enough for the task on our own, but we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. To the unbeliever present today, you have heard the subject of repentance analyzed and argued in the life of a Christian, but what about you? Do you realize that you are in desperate need of repentance this morning? Many people look upon their sin as minor indiscretions. I assure you, God does not take such a light view of your minor indiscretions. God says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And to fall short of the glory of God is to be less than perfect. And God has said in Matthew 5, verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So not only have we all sinned, we have sinned yet again by not being perfect as God is perfect. The Bible also commands you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Mark 1 verse 15, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This command of God is just as binding and has the same authority as do not murder and do not steal. The penalty for sin is the grave. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 This death is not merely physical death for everyone, Christian and non-Christian, dies, but rather eternal spiritual death in hell. Hell is separation from God. The reality of the matter is this. God is angry with you over your open rebellion to his commands. His anger is kindled against you over your rejection of his son. Of your position before him, God has this to say. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth, and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Romans 2, 5 through 8. There is hope for objects of wrath, for although it's true that the wages of sin is death, the latter part of Romans 6.23 reads, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You need not stay in your sins blindly wandering towards the abyss. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for his people by taking all of their sins upon himself and dying on the cross. Thus, if Jesus' atoning work is applied to your life, you will stand justified before God. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Romans 5. A problem, however, resides in our hearts. To the things of God, we have a cold, dead heart of stone. It is unreceptive to the call of the gospel on its own. But God stands ready to change that heart. I will give you a new heart, says the Lord, 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And with this new heart, God will grant you life. Then you will be able to respond to the call of the gospel. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your gift to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, a Savior, to take away our sins completely. You say that you have put our sins away as far as the east is from the west, Lord. And I'm thankful for that. Thank you for repentance, for belief, and for the gospel. We pray this morning that you'll send your spirit on everyone here. And then you'll work in all of our hearts. To the praise and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our last hymn this morning is 455 in the Trinity. 455 in the Trinity, the red hymnal. Stand with me again. <laughs> 